Blog Talk Radio. Turnbuckle Turmoil fans, welcome to the show on another Sunday afternoon. Sign Guy along with QT Volks with you as usual. Real fast before we jump into it with our guest, some show notes if you're looking for some pro wrestling today. IWA Mid-South in Indianapolis, Indiana featuring Sabu. You also have the return of Without a Cause Wrestling in Everett Walker show back post pandemic. And then also today in Denver, Colorado, Primo's Pro Wrestling. So if you have some wrestling near you, get out there, support it, and keep the independence thriving. Without any further ado, I want to welcome our guest today as we wrap up Photography Month. Our guest was a wrestling photographer for the Florida Territory in the 1970s. He had his work published in the Western Publishing magazines, which would be Inside Wrestling, Sports Review Wrestling, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, came later. Donald D. Leon, thank you so much for being with us. Welcome to the show. Happy to have you here. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to be a guest on your show. I look forward to it. I look forward to all your questions. Pleasure to be here. Well, since it is your first time with this, I will start you out with our traditional first-timer question. What led to you getting into professional wrestling photography? Well, I was always a fan of professional wrestling from a young boy, eight or nine years old, watching Gordon Soley on championship wrestling from Florida every Saturday. And... I also was into photography when I was in a junior high. I was in the photography club and the school paper and the yearbook. So I really enjoyed wrestling, and I would beg my father to take me to the wrestling matches. And finally one day he decided to take me to the wrestling matches, and I kind of fell in love with wrestling. I really thought that it was real. I became a member of the Jack Briscoe fan club. That was uh, Wayne Lebo. Wayne Lebo was the one that had the Jack Briscoe fan club. I was a member of the Jack Briscoe fan club. And um, I just fell in love with professional wrestling. And when you get into the business in an auxiliary role as a photographer, when you first went to the matches and you first were watching wrestling, did you think that that was something that was going to happen for you? Did you see that as a career goal, or is it something that you stumbled upon later on in your fandom? Well, it it was interesting because when I first went to professional wrestling, when I was eight or nine, I had a Kodak Instamatic, the one with the little uh, four flash bulb on it, and then I had the Polaroid uh, Instamatic, the, the one that would pop out the picture at the same time. So I, was, I would be taking pictures of the wrestlers. I never thought about really being a photographer. But there was a professional photographer at the matches named Ruth Ullman, and she used to take amazing pictures with her Nikon F camera. And I used to buy pictures from her every single week, and I, I had an album. And I said to myself, my God, I can do the same thing that, that she's doing. And you know, obviously, the, it cost a dollar to get in the matches back then. That's what general admission was. So I would pay $1 to get in, and I really wouldn't go near the ring. I would hang out toward the dressing room with the wrestlers and talk to them, and I would take pictures of them. And then the following week, I would bring them the pictures that I took, 
And then the wrestlers started like looking for me because I would give them pictures and, and they, they would tell me, my God, you know, you should take, send some of these into the magazines. They're so good. And, you know, that's how it all kind of started. You were fairly young when you were doing photography for wrestling. Uh, there's been a lot of very famous people within the world of pro wrestling that started out as teenagers doing wrestling photography, and they were fairly widely accepted. Uh, people like Jim Cornette, Paul Heyman, Eddie Gilbert, uh, several more all were teenagers doing photography in different parts of the country. Being that you were so young, did you feel that the people that worked for the Florida Territory respected you as a professional? Were things a little bit different as far as your age uh, in the Florida Territory? Uh, that's that's a very good question because at the time when I really started to take pictures professionally, I had a Canon FTB camera, a Vivitar 283 flash, and I was taking pictures of the wrestlers, but the problem was is that the security guards there, they were so tough in Miami that they wouldn't let anybody back there. They wouldn't let any of the kids back there. It was a real hard time for me to get back there. The only way that I could get back there is I was taking pictures of some of the wrestlers and they knew I was coming with their pictures. So they would tell the security guard, hey, let the kid come back here. He's got some pictures for me. I want him to take some pictures. And normally the security down there, if the professional wrestler would tell them, hey, let the kid back there, they would let the, the kid back there. But you're 100% correct. It was extremely tough, especially being 14 or 15 years old. But I got very, very, very lucky because uh, Sir Oliver Humperdinck was one of the first guys that I started taking pictures of. And in Miami, it was very tough. But in Fort Lauderdale, like Miami was on Wednesday night. Friday night was Fort Lauderdale. So I would take pictures on Wednesday night in Miami, and I had my own dark room. I would develop all the pictures myself, develop the negatives, develop the prints, then I would go to Fort Lauderdale on Friday night, and I would give the wrestlers their pictures, and the security was very easy in Fort Lauderdale. So the wrestlers would literally take me into the dressing room, pose for me bleeding, and I started sending the pictures to the magazines, and eventually they started publishing my pictures. And I really thought it was amazing. Unfortunately, they only paid me $5 a picture for black and whites or $35 for the front cover. So... I knew that this wasn't something that could be a real career for me because financially it just wasn't going to pay off. But at 15, 16, and 17, and even 18 years old, man, I was getting to do things that no other kids my age could do, and, and that was to go into the matches, to go into the dressing room, to kneel down at ringside. And the reason why I was able to kneel down at ringside was, you know, I spoke to Bill Apter once I started sending him pictures and Bill Lapter said he was going to come down to Miami and have a talk with Chris Dundee, who was the promoter in the Miami Beach Auditorium. And, Chris and Bill Lapter came down to Miami. He met me. He got together with Chris Dundee and Frank Freeman. Frank Freeman was the ring announcer in Miami, but Frank Freeman, he ran the show. He was in charge of everything. He was in charge of whoever was going to kneel at ringside or go into the dressing room. And at that time, there was only one older guy named Paul Bowman who was allowed to take pictures at ringside. And Bill Apter spoke to Chris Dundee, and Chris Dundee said, my God, Stanley Weston, he's a good friend of mine for all these years, and, you know, if this kid wants to take pictures, let him take pictures. So that, that was how that started. That was really the day that got me going, and Frank let me kneel at ringside and take pictures and told me I could go back and take pictures of the wrestlers outside the dressing room and you know the the wrestlers would even take me in the dressing room to take pictures so that's really how that all started so i'm very grateful for bill after for making that happen for me now your time in wrestling was really before pwi took off uh, they came out in 1979 and eventually became the standard for wrestling magazines but 
up until around 20 years ago, there were usually several magazines on the newsstands at any given time. Did you work with a number of the different magazines, or were you strictly uh, working with the Stanley Weston group of magazines? Well, I'll, I'll tell you how, how that happened. The first time I sent 100 pictures to Stanley Weston's magazine, and they only published one, and they sent me $5 for that picture. And then I took the other 99, and I sent them to the Big Book of Wrestling, which was another magazine at the time, and they published like 90% of them. And I got super excited. But after a couple months, I sent them a letter, and I said, hey, where's the money for the pictures to the magazines? They go, oh, we don't pay our photographers. And I said, oh, my God, the heck with that. I mean, why am I going to spend all my time and energy sending these pictures to a magazine and not even get paid for them? So, you know, Bill After was, was paying me. Uh, he's the one that basically got me down at ringside, got me back into the dressing room. So I just became loyal to his magazine because he, he did everything for me. I would have a byline in there for my photo credits. So I was extremely grateful and appreciative and just 100% loyal to Bill Apter and the wrestler in Inside Wrestling Magazine. One of the things that a lot of photographers even today will try to capture because it's usually eye-popping, even though the landscape has changed dramatically in the last few years, is blood during matches. A lot of photographers would try to get a lot of shots of matches that have blood in it, especially if there were collar magazines where if they were selling collar 8x10s, they wanted that visual with the blood. I know it's a different type of atmosphere today just because of people's knowledge of bloodborne illnesses and things of that nature sometimes makes them weary of it. But when you were a photographer, did you try to make sure that you got a lot of shots of blood on the shows you were doing, or did you uh, kind of shy away from that a little bit? How was your own personal belief when it came to blood? Well, there there were two kinds of matches for me. There was the type of match, Dory Funk Jr. and Jack Briscoe, and when they wrestled, I knew it was going to be a scientific match. There were going to be amazing holds being used. It was like a photographer's dream. The blood matches, it was the same adrenaline rush. For the most part, the wrestlers would tell me that they were going to be bleeding in that match. So to make sure that I'm up there taking pictures of them, and I, I used to love taking pictures of the blood match, but you got to remember this. At the time, I was 15 or 16 years old, and I can remember a match in the Miami Beach Auditorium, it was Terry Funk against Harley Race in a cage match. This is the first time I was ever in a cage match. But what happened was I was kneeling at ringside, and then they put the cage down, and the cage literally was like two feet behind me. So there really wasn't any room between me and the cage to take pictures. So at one point in the match, uh, Terry Funk threw Harley Race out of the ring, and Terry went out on the other side. When they were coming together, I was in between them, and I, I couldn't get away. And the first thing Harley said was, get under the ring, kid. So I literally had to crawl underneath the ring, go all the way to the other side, and I was scared to death. And when I got home that night, I didn't realize it, but my shirt was just completely covered in blood. And when my mother saw that, my mother said, that's it. You're grounded for three months. You can't go to wrestling. Because she was so upset that I came home with a shirt full of blood. <laughs> Were you able to soak the shirt in water and ice and get the blood out, or was the shirt a loss? No, no. The, the shirt was a complete loss. But to answer your question, yeah, I did love the uh, bloody matches because I would have two cameras. I had two Canon FTBs not the best camera in the world it's not a nikon but at the time it was it was it was relatively an affordable camera at the time those cameras were about 250 to 300 dollars that nikon camera was like a thousand dollars i could not afford that as a kid but i would have one camera for black and white and one camera for color and 
The ones for black and white would be all the action shots. Now, you've got to remember, back then, we had to focus the camera. We had to set the aperture to let the, the right amount of light in, into the uh, lens. It was a very difficult thing. Not every picture came out perfect like they do nowadays with these self-focusing cameras. Now, here in 2021, especially this summer, outdoor shows are usually fairly prevalent on the independent level. Uh, there's a lot of outdoor shows at fairs and in uh, parking lots and the different parks that have facilities, things of that nature. How prevalent were outdoor shows in the Florida Territory when you were doing photography? When I was doing photography, they never had an outside show, at least not one that I participated in. I think the first outside show that I can remember was in January of 1978 when they had the uh, Super Bowl of Wrestling and the Orange Bowl, which was Harley Race and superstar Billy Graham. And actually, when they had that match, I had... I, I was in college at the time. I went, started going to college in 1976. So I started really focusing on what I really wanted to do in my career. So I started taking pictures less and less of wrestling. But, you know, that's, that's the only one of my time that I can remember that was really outdoors. Now, obviously wrestling is something that can be Put in any type of venue, the types of venues vary quite a bit, and with that, you're going to see variances in the lighting and the aesthetics and all of that type of thing. Those things play a very heavy role in how photography will work for a given show. Did you have a particular favorite? venue uh, where you would do photography just because of how easy it was to shoot or maybe because you like the look of it better anything like that yeah I, I i used to like taking pictures in uh the miami beach auditorium the miami beach convention hall and in in west palm beach because the big white lights were normally higher and i was shooting underneath the ropes so for the most part I never got those lights to interfere with the pictures that I was taking. But um, as far as venues go, too, I used to like going to West Palm Beach even better than Miami, even though I lived in Miami. Because when I went to West Palm Beach, I used to take pictures with Bill After's father, who was Nate After. He actually lived in West Palm Beach. And I would wait for him outside the West Palm Beach Auditorium. I would wait for him to come in. And when he would come in, I would go in there with him, and I would sit at ringside with him. And, man, he was such a nice guy. It was really nice taking pictures with him. But, you know, any venue where the lighting was higher up was, was a great venue. And where they had them lower, it was just more difficult. In the Miami Marine Stadium, for example, they had this red and white tent. And uh, I hated taking pictures there because that red and white tent would get in every single picture, and it just wouldn't make a great background. One of the ways that pro wrestlers continue to do to still make extra income, and it has been prevalent for many decades now, is selling 8x10s of photos. Uh, usually during intermission, wrestlers will go out and they will sign the 8x10s, and they might make several times more than what their actual wrestling payoff is in picture money, uh, depending on the territory and the time frame. A lot of wrestlers made very, very good livings just from the photography. When you were doing this, did you do a lot of promotional pictures for the wrestlers so they could do the 8x10s and make money that way, or was that something that wasn't a big factor for you? Now, that, that really wasn't a big factor. What, what I used to do, the deal that I had with the wrestlers, is every single picture that I took of them, I would give them the uh, picture. 
I never sold a picture in my entire life. I never sold a picture at the uh, arenas to kids, to anybody else. My whole deal was I took pictures of the wrestlers. I'd give the wrestlers the pictures that I took, and then I would send the pictures into Aptors Magazine, and that's, that's really it. But I would give the wrestlers the pictures always because if they're going to pose for me, you know, the least I can do is give them the pictures. And since I was developing them myself at home, I mean, literally, I could make an 8x10 in black and white that cost me maybe 40 or 50 cents. You know, a color 8x10 would cost me like a buck and a half. So it really wasn't a lot of money. One of the harder matches I'm guessing to really do justice for is a battle royal. They can often be sort of chaotic, uh, especially if you have a bigger battle royal and you have 25, 30 guys in there at one time. It's also a little bit more dangerous for people at ringside because you have bodies flying out of the ring from every side, so there's a little more danger factor involved. Were you a big fan of the Battle Royals when you were doing photography? Uh, no, I, I actually never took a picture of, of a Battle Royal. I, I didn't see any real purpose to do it. There are too many wrestlers in the ring and too many guys getting thrown out and, you know, being in that kind of confined space. I didn't want to put myself in, in that type of position where somebody might get thrown on top of me or, but it, it just didn't make a good picture with all those guys in the ring at one time. I think the magazines really focused on certain wrestlers that they really wanted pictures of, the top wrestlers, Dusty Rhodes, Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk Jr., Terry Funk, Harley Race, um, Andre the Giant. These, these are the guys that I would really try to get the pictures from because you've got to remember back then, too, we just used uh, AA batteries in our flash so you only had a certain amount of pictures that you could take per night. I didn't have a, a, uh, a rechargeable flash. I had to put batteries in my flash. So I really valued every single picture that I took. I didn't take two, 300 pictures a night. I took 24 to 36 pictures a night, and I really waited for the right pictures to take and wouldn't waste pictures on anything. Um. Television, of course, is a huge factor for any wrestling promotion, and especially in the territorial days, wrestling used television to market their house show business. It was essentially a uh, a commercial for you to go and watch the live shows. Did you go to the television tapings very often to get pictures there or did you wait for strictly the live shows? Yeah. Remember at the time I was 15, 16, 17 years old. I was in high school. So basically the TV sh tapings were on Thursday morning in Tampa and I would take pictures Wednesday night. I wouldn't get home till like midnight on Wednesday night. And then I would develop all my pictures and be up till like four or five in the morning. So I never really went to the TV tapings. Uh, they didn't do a lot of uh, uh, videography back then either. I remember one of the first times they did the videography was when uh, Jack Briscoe defended the world title in Miami Beach Auditorium in 1975 against Terry Funk. And originally the way that match was is it was supposed to be Jack Briscoe against Dory Funk Jr. And what happened was uh, Dory Funk Jr. was, I guess he was in Japan. Terry Funk uh, took the place of, of Dory and Terry actually won the world title. But that night, Frank Freeman and Gordon Soley came up to me and told me, listen, you can't take pictures at ringside tonight unless you take your flash off because we're filming this match for historical purposes. So you have a choice. You can either take your flash off if you want to kneel at ringside or I'll let you stay back in the dressing room and take pictures after the match, you know. So I decided to stay in the dressing room because I got the first pictures of Terry Funk with the NWA world title belt in 1975 and took pictures of uh, Gordon Soley interviewing Terry Funk with the world championship belt. So for me, I was super excited. And, and let me tell you, even though wrestling is scripted, I've never in my life seen Terry Funk so happy. 
He was beaming back there. To win that world title, how much that meant to him was unbelievable to see how happy he was. And he was bouncing off the walls. He was so happy to be the world champion. And you can't fake that. You mentioned Gordon Soley being there to interview him. Gordon Soley was probably as popular as any of the wrestlers despite being the play-by-play guy, he was a massive part of the Florida wrestling popularity, being the voice of Florida wrestling. I know you didn't go to the television very often, but how often would you see Gordon Soley at these shows, and did you interact very much with him? Gordon only really went to the matches uh, where I took pictures maybe three or four times a year. And whenever he was there, I would talk to him. I would take pictures of him. I'd take pictures of him with other wrestlers and give him the pictures. But um, I didn't really interact with him very much because he was on a tight schedule and he had his thing. And I was just a kid, and I really didn't want to interfere in his agenda that he had set for that night. But I had a good relationship with him. Whenever he saw me, I'd give him pictures and he was very grateful and humble, uh, super nice guy, and he was the reason why Championship Wrestling from Florida was such such a success because he was so believable. Now, one of the people that would have been in and out of Florida at that time is someone that a few years after you got out of it became a massive star and carried the – NWA on his back, that being Ric Flair. I'm sure you uh, were there at some of the matches when Ric Flair would come through. Do you have any particular favorite memory of the Nature Boy Ric Flair? Well, it's it, it's funny because when I was in college up at FSU in Tallahassee, that was in, from 1976 to about 1980, I remember I would drive to Atlanta from Tallahassee to take pictures in the Omni you know, five or six times a year. And there was one night I was in a restaurant on the top floor and I was wearing this Valentino suit and who comes in and sits next to a table next to me was uh, Ric Flair. And he was saying, oh my God, that's a beautiful suit. And I was talking to him about that. And I told him, you know, I was a photographer. I hadn't even met him yet. You know, this was still early in his career. And and I got to meet him that night. And then a few years back, he did wrestle down in uh, Florida. he defended the world title with uh, Dusty Rhodes. They had a match, and, and after the match, we ended up going out to a, uh, to a strip joint. <laughs> and let me tell you, I can tell you that Ric Flair is the same outside of the ring that he is inside of the ring. He bought everybody drinks. He was the life of the party, super nice guy, amazing personality, just an all-around great guy. Uh, looking back on your first meeting with Ric Flair, did you ever envision that all these years later, Ric Flair would still be actively in the professional wrestling business and also having sort of a career resurgence as being kind of a pop icon? Yeah, well, you got to remember, Ric Flair had his plane accident in uh, the mid-70s, he wasn't even supposed to ever wrestle again. But I knew he was going to have an amazing career because he had an incredible personality. You could just lit, watch him on TV, and he really was the man, and he knew how to talk the talk, and he knew how to wrestle. Guys like Ric Flair, Terry Funk, Harley Race, those guys had amazing careers because they had NWA in their blood. They lived and they breathed professional wrestling, and if I had to pick my top four NWA wrestlers of all time, it would be Ric Flair, Harley Race, Terry Funk, and either Dory or Jack Briscoe. Now, a lot of times in pro wrestling, guys that you may not expect to do very much when they're starting out because they're very seldom winning or they may not have the best look or whatever the case may be. Once they hit a few years into their career, they will hit 
a different gear, and that will go way up into the ranks of superstardom. Was there ever anyone when you were doing photography that you just didn't see very much in because of whatever reason that a few years later they were on top of the business? Absolutely. When Stan Hansen first started, he first started in Florida. His name was Battling Stan Hansen, and he was in the preliminary matches, and, and he wasn't winning at all. He was a tall, skinny kid, and he became one of the best wrestlers of all time, one of the wildest wrestlers. The same thing with Bob Backlund. Bob Backlund started here in Florida. He was, he was a preliminary-type wrestler, nice kid. He became a world champion. Another guy, this Ed Wysikowski, he, he was just another guy that did nothing, and then he became Colonel De Beers. So a lot of these guys, you know, they started out at the bottom, and they worked their way up to the top, and that's good for them. On the flip side of that, was there ever anyone that you saw that you was sure would be a major star and for whatever reason, they just never really broke out? Well, there were, I, I think there were several guys like that. There was this wrestler named Tony Charles who was from England. He was the British Isles champion. He was an a, incredible wrestler, incredible wrestler, but he just never seemed to get any, any kind of a uh, push. But, you know, for, for the most part, if, if, if you had an athletic body and you were good on the mic, and you stuck around long enough, you, you would become something. Well, at this point in time, my co-host Cute Evokes is standing by, and I know that he has a few questions, so I'm going to pass things over to him. Sure. Well, thank you, Sangai. Hello, Mr. DeLeon. How are you, sir? Uh, not too bad, pretty good. Uh, Mr. DeLeon, I was wondering if you yourself had time to turn out for wrestling in, in high school or junior high despite your photography. Well, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story. When I was going to college up at FSU, I was a baseball pitcher. I weighed 135 pounds. I was just starting to uh, lift weights in the gym. And I had a friend of mine who uh, threw, threw the shot put. He was on a scholarship at FSU. I told him I was a professional wrestling photographer. He asked me if I'd take him to the matches. I did take him to the matches. And the promoter in Tallahassee, his name was uh, Nicky Barnes. And when the matches were over, Nicky got together with me and he got together with my friend and he said, listen, I want both you guys to be professional wrestlers. And I laughed and I said, look, I only weigh 100 and 40 pounds at the time. There's no way that I could be a wrestler. He goes, oh, I can put some weight on you. You know, I could have you guys both wrestle. Well, my friend, he weighed 220 pounds. His name was Vinny Bellotto. He was one of my best friends. And he, and he took Nikki's advice, and he started to train from Nikki, and he became a Vinny Romeo, Vinny Valentino, who wrestled in the late 18, I mean, 1980s and 1990s. Maybe you saw him on championship wrestling from Florida or championship wrestling from Georgia. But, you know, a friend of mine did, he did become a wrestler. I never had ambitions for that personally because, you know, I just really couldn't do that every night. I couldn't cut myself with a razor blade either. Well, if you had become a wrestler, uh, would your mom uh, be, what, what would your mom say if you had become a wrestler? Would she say, take the baby face root or, or the heel? <laughs> well, she would, she would probably say, take, take the baby face route because, you know, <laughs> she, she wouldn't want me to be a heel. But it is, I do have another story. Um, later, after I was a professional wrestling photographer, I got into the nursery business. I grew bromeliads and orchids for 40 years with my brother as a partner. And uh, we were doing a lot of orchids. And this one lady that would come to my place every day and buy orchids, she, she told me, she said, I'm so angry at my son because my son just became a professional wrestler and he's in the ring in his underwear and I'm so angry with him. And you know what his name was? His name was Bill Goldberg. 
and Bill Goldberg was her son, and she was an orchid judge, and she would come to my place, so she would take me to the matches with him, and little did she know that her son in his underwear in the ring became one of the greatest WCW wrestlers of all time. Wow. Holy smokes. I wouldn't really call it underwear, though. I, 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 I suspect that Bill Goldberg never wore those to, uh, like, bed. Yes. Um, I'm not sure. I never saw what he wore to bed. But, you know, uh, his, his mother thought that it was underwear because that's the way it looked to her. And she was so angry with him. But when he signed his first contract and he got all those zeros, at the end of his contract, uh, she, she became pretty proud of him. Oh boy! Okay, I can I could see that. Yes, many zeros. <laughs> okay, well, uh, Mister DeLeon, when you were in college and you were uh, pitching, what was your best pitch? A curveball? Actually, I I had a pitch that I called my drop ball, which was a curveball where I came right over the top like, like a yo-yo because I could throw like a 94-mile-an-hour fastball, but my, but my drop ball was about 70 or 71 miles an hour. So I would say my drop ball was my favorite pitch. Okay. Were you ever contacted by the minor leagues as, as, with a possible tryout, the minor leagues? No, no, because I was pretty irresponsible in college. You know, I – I, I pitched for two years for FSU, and then I kind of got bored of that and then um, started a career in the nursery business with uh, my brother, which ended up being a very lucrative career that I'm very appreciative that I ended up following that, that way in my career. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, Mr. DeLeon, did you ever dip an orchid in liquid nitrogen and slip it to a wrestler so he could use this frozen orchid as a foreign object. <laughs> uh, no, no, not, not, not that I can really uh, remember. Oh, okay. All right. Very good. Okay. Well, Mr. DeLeon, did you ever have the chance to photograph a wrestler who wrestled for Florida Championship Wrestling in the mid to late 70s, the great Mustafa? He was from Saudi Arabia. I never even heard of him. The great Mustafa? You mean the great Mephisto? Mephisto. I I mispronounced that. (laughs) Yes. 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 Uh, The great Mephisto. That was Frankie Kane. Frankie Kane. Oh, okay. All right. Yes, he had the luxurious black beard and mustache and his prayer rug that he knelt to pray on. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, I, was he I do remember from him. Saudi Arabia? No. <laughs> no, I oh. don't think he was from Saudi Arabia. He was probably from New York. Oh, okay. Well, did you also get to photograph a, a, a wrestler who wrestled him? I'm not sure how many times, Tom Jones. I do remember Tom Jones, but I never took pictures of him because um, – Having a limited amount of film in my camera, I, I really was there just for the main events. Oh, okay. Okay, the main events. Okay. And so Tom Jones was more of a mid-carter? Yes. Okay. All right. All right. Well, Mr. DeLeon, when you were uh, the, in the Junior High Photography Club, did you find out this attracted the girls? Uh, actually, to be honest with you, it, it, it really did attract the girls because I would go around and take pictures of people and they knew that it was going to be in the yearbook or in the paper. So they were always trying to come around to get their pictures taken, and I would oblige, obviously. Okay. All right. Now, have you ever uh, did you ever take pictures in junior high and high school with the full intent of not showing those pictures until specifically uh, 30 or 40 years later to surprise your classmates as a surprise. No, but that's, I think that's a great idea, but unfortunately I never did that. Yes, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of uh, interesting to take pictures 
and then hide them away with the intent of surprising people 30 or 40 years later. They get a big kick out of it. I, I would think that they would. Yes. Oh, okay. Wow, that's all right. Very good. All right. Well, uh, Mr. DeLeon, when you were getting into the matches for a dollar in Florida, and that lady was there with her more expensive Nikon camera, at any time did you compare her pictures to your Polaroid Instamatics, and did you think your pictures were as good as her Nikon pictures? Uh, my pictures were never as good as her, her Nikon pictures. She had a, uh, a Canon F1 with a 1.2 lens, and my Polaroid Ooh. and Kodaks were uh, not, not very good. She, no, she was a professional photographer. She was my mentor, and she gave me the inspiration to going out and getting a better camera and to do better things, and I appreciate everything that she did because she inspired me to, to be better. Oh, okay. All right. Okay, very good. It's always good to have a, a mentor. All right. Well, Mr. DeLeon, how many pictures did you take of Frank Freeman? Um, probably about 20 pictures of Frank Freeman. I had pictures of him in the ring with uh, different wrestlers. Uh, Frank ran the show in uh, Miami. He was the one in charge of everything there. I, I respected him because he, he really ran a tight ship. And uh, he was he was a great thing for the Miami Beach uh, Auditorium and for Championship Wrestling of Florida. Okay. Wow. All right. Well, Mr. DeLeon, did you ever have a chance to take pictures of Kamala, the Ugandan giant, or did he not let you take them because he thought his photos would cap your photos would capture his soul? Kamala. No, I never took pictures of Kamala. He actually came after me, but I have some good Abdullah the Butcher stories. Ooh, can you tell one? Yeah, the first time I ever met Abdullah the Butcher, I think I was 16 years old. I think it was 17 years old. It was in 1975. I drove up to West Palm Beach. I was waiting for Nate Apter to to uh, come into the building, and Abdullah was walking uh, by me, and I introduced myself to him as a professional photographer for the Wrestler and Inside Wrestling magazine, and he says, pleasure to meet you. My name is Larry Shreve. And, and I said, oh, Larry, nice nice to meet you. Would you pose for some pictures? He says, sure. As soon as I get ready, I'll come and find you. <laughs> so he comes out and finds me. We go back, and he's got this uh, belt on. It, it was the Central American Heavyweight Championship belt. And like 15 minutes later, I had taken pictures of Cyclone Negro in the dressing room with the same exact belt. Evidently, I guess um, Cyclone Negro lent the belt to, to him. So I was taking some pictures of him, and he says to me, he goes, are you going to be taking pictures of my match tonight? I said, yes. He says, well, when the match is over, he says, I'm going to be bleeding, and I want you to stand right in front of me, and I want you to take as many pictures as you can, and I'm going to make a lot of faces at you. And I said, okay. So the match is over. He's all bloody. I get in front of him, and I start taking some pictures. I took two or three pictures, and then all of a sudden he starts walking fast toward me. So I start backing up. You know, even though I know this is fake, I'm getting a little scared because he's coming at me. So I'm walking back, and then he starts, then he starts running at me. So I, I run around the ring, and I look, and he's chasing me. He chased me around the ring three times. I end up running out, out into the uh, heels dressing room. He's right behind me. And as soon as he gets in the door, he starts laughing and says, thank you for being a part of the show. And I say, you son of a bitch, you scared the shit out of me. I was so scared. <coughs> he was such a fun guy, such a nice guy. Oh. And then he posed for some bloody pictures. He, he got one of the cops and, and, and got the cops handcuffs and had he was handcuffed to the cop. I mean, this, this guy just went all out for pictures. He was amazing. Hey, that's a, that is a good story. Oh, that's a, all right. Boy, I wonder how fast sign guy would have ran around the ring or myself. Probably pretty fast. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, Mr. DeLeon, did you ever suggest to any of the wrestlers that they use the song Kodachrome by Paul Simon as their entrance music? 
No, you know, back then they, they really didn't have any entrance music. Yes. But that is a great song. Yes. I wonder if the song Kodachrome has ever been used as entrance music. It should be. I'm not a hundred. I'm not 100% sure, but if, if if you become a wrestler, that could be your entrance music. Well, yes, I, I would have thought Ric Flair would have thought of it because he because he liked to be photographed so much. Yes. Okay. Boy, that's Ric Flair and Kodachrome. All right. Well, Mr. DeLeon, did you ever have a chance to take photographs at the Cauliflower Alley Club? At where? At the Cauliflower Alley Club, CAC. No, I've, 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 I've actually never been there. Okay, okay. All right. Well, Mr. DeLeon, who was the first, who were the first female wrestlers that you photographed, and what was the first all-female match that you photographed that you can remember? Well, I can remember Sherry Leaf facing Bonnie Watson in uh, Miami. Um, okay. I really didn't take a picture of a lot of the ladies' matches because back then we really didn't have a lot of them. Back then in the mid-'70s, uh, you might have had one every five or six months. So there weren't a lot of lady wrestlers that were wrestling really on a weekly basis back then. Okay. Okay. All right. Mr. DeLeon, because of your work of photography and wrestling <laughs> – did any of the wrestlers want you to photograph their weddings? No. Well, it is interesting because when I was in Tallahassee, I had met a wrestler named Big Bad John. And uh, Big Bad John had just finished his match. He told me, come back to the dressing room and take some pictures of me bleeding. He looked in the mirror. He didn't have much blood. He pulled out his razor blade, started cutting his forehead until he was bleeding a lot. And then he w- <laughs> literally, and then he was posing for a bunch of pictures. He asked me to go with him to Tennessee because he was going to become a character called the Bicentennial Baby, and that he wanted me to be his personal photographer and take all the pictures of his matches. But, you know, obviously, you know, I, was, I wasn't going to do that. Oh, boy. He cut, it, he cut his forehead uh, with a razor blade right in front of you, huh? Or poked it with right a razor blade? Me. Right Ooh, in front boy, of me. That's... Right in front of me. Boy, okay. Ooh, boy. <laughs> and by the way, I've, right. I've, ne- I've never, I've never cut myself with a razor blade either. Oh, okay. Wow, I, 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 I don't suggest that. Yes, don't suggest it. Thank okay. you. Thank you. <laughs> well, Mr. D. Leon, if you had a chance to time travel, and back to the seventies, and you had a chance to be on the set of either One Day at a Time with Bonnie Franklin, Valerie Bertinelli, and Mackenzie Phillips, or Three's Company with Jack Witter, Joyce DeWitt, Suzanne Summers, and Don Knotts, which, which sitcom would you choose? Probably the one with Valerie Bertinelli. Aha, okay, one day at a time. Okay, very good. All right. Valerie, did you uh, also... Did, wait, uh, who would you rather photograph, Valerie Bertinelli or Suzanne Summers, or Joyce DeWitt, if you had a choice? Um, probably Barbara Eden. She was always my favorite oh. when I was a young kid. Barbara Eden. Wow, that's a very good choice. Okay. I dream okay. of Jeannie. She was she was my yeah. uh, crush when I was a little boy. Oh, okay. All right. Well, who do you? Who do you believe would win a, in a steel cage match in the 70s, Don Knotts or, Gord, or Gordon Soley, if they faced each other? Probably Gordon Soley. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Yes, but Don Knotts, Knotts could sure make those uh, faces of exasperation. Yes. Or surprise. Gordon knew all the holds. Oh, that's Gordon true. Gordon knew the yes. names of all the holds. It doesn't help you much if you can make faces if you're in a in a hold with Gordon, Gordon Soley. Yes. Okay. There All right. Well, okay. Uh, Mr. DeLeon, what did you think of the movie Full Metal Jacket, where Joker 
went through Marine Corps boot camp and became a photographer for Stars and Stripes, and he encounter, encounters Animal Mother, played by Adam Baldwin, and he asks uh, Joker the stupid question, are you a photographer? Even though Private Joker has a camera around his neck. What did you think about that scene in Full Metal Jacket? You're not going to believe me, but I never saw the movie. Oh, oh, okay. I might be the only one. Well, I might be the only one. But wow, all right. Well, it's your turnbuckle turmoil homework assignment to look up Full Thank Metal you. Jacket and see Joker with his photography equipment and the scene where he encounters Animal Mother. Um, I'm going to make sure to do that. Yes. If, uh, he, uh, you, you, I think you would appreciate it because Joker is working as a photographer for Stars and Stripes. Yes. Nice. Okay. Very nice homework assignment. And it, when you do, can you get back to uh, Turnbuckle Turmoil, the Facebook page, and and say what you thought of this iconic scene? Absolutely. Old metal jacket. Absolutely. That'll be great. Absolutely. That'll be very good. Oh, okay. All right. Well, at this time, I'm going to turn it back over to Sign Guy. Thank you. Thank you, QT. Yes, well, Donald, one of the things that I think was happening when you were in Florida doing photography is something that we see fairly common in the last few years uh, once again, and that is the talent exchange from different countries. We see a lot of wrestlers from Mexico and Japan and other nations come into the United States for a few tours, and then the American wrestlers would do the same. When you were doing photography, did you ever have problems with some of the foreign visitors that would pass through as far as communicating what you needed to get the pictures and things of that nature, or is that something that wasn't at your pay scale, so to speak, at that point? No, that 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 really wasn't around then. That really wasn't around. There were a few wrestlers that couldn't speak English, like Pac Song. He couldn't speak any English. There were a few wrestlers like that, but no. One of the other things that uh, we would see in the 70s, of course, is back then, especially with the NWA system, there was a lot of turnover with talent. Uh, People would be in and out of territories. Usually the unofficial rule was a year to year and a half would be the lifespan of a wrestler in a territory before they would move on to somewhere else. You were in it for four or five years. Did you notice as someone that was kind of on the fringes of wrestling that that was the way of pro wrestling, that people were in and out a lot, or did you really not quite grasp uh, that aspect of the business? Well, back back then it was really the, the NWA was the top wrestling association. They really didn't have these pay-per-views or things like that. <clears throat> I do remember when I was in college back in 76, I was taking pictures of superstar Billy Graham in uh, Tallahassee, and he told me that he was going to be winning the uh, WWF title from uh, Bruno San Martino in a couple of weeks, and that he wanted to come down and pose for me with the uh, belt. So um, about two months later, when I was down in Miami, I was at the matches, and uh, the uh, security guard called me and says, hey, Billy Graham is calling for you. And I went back there, and Billy Graham had on his WWF belt. Now, he was in the NWA territory. He had just won the NWA title from the WWF title from Bruno San Martino. And back then, the, the alliances, they really didn't cross like that. They, they, they really didn't uh, interchange people. But I do know that that, that night, uh, Harley Race was supposed to be wrestling uh, Jack Briscoe for the NWA title. And I was taking pictures of Superstar, and I saw Harley Race down the hall. And I didn't get along with Harley Race very well. He was a real kayfabe guy. He, he, he really didn't like to pose for anyone if he didn't know you. So I asked Superstar to call him over and 
superstar called Harley over. He had his belt with him, and I took three pictures of them with the uh, with their belts on, with the WWF belt and the NWA belt. I think it's one of the first times that anyone ever took a picture of the NWA champion along with the WWF champion. And uh, that picture was on the front cover of Wrestling Superstars, December 1977. And that's really one of the pictures that I feel that I'm most proud of that, that I took. And if it wasn't for Superstar Graham, you know, I would have never gotten that picture. Did you save very much as far as memorabilia goes? Do you have uh, framed pictures of things that you took, or do you have things that wrestlers may have given you over the years that you have in a collection, or were you not much of a merchandise type of guy at that point? Well, I used to save everything, but a lot of my pictures when I went to college, I ended up getting getting rid of them. I sold them to people, but I've since bought almost everything back. Plus, I still have relationships with wrestlers. I I was talking with Buddy Colt for the last two years until he recently died. I was talking to Buddy Colt three or four times a week. I was actually at the wrestling matches in 1975, the night when Buddy Colt got into the plane accident with Bobby Shane when Bobby Shane died. So um, I, I, I do still talk with some of the wrestlers. Well, we're down to the last few minutes of the show, and I want to give you ample time. If there's anything you want to say in closing, if you want to plug and promote absolutely anything whatsoever, floor is all yours. No, there's nothing that I really want to promote. I just have been a fan of professional wrestling all of my life. I was very blessed and privileged to be a photographer at the age of 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. I was able to do things that other kids my age were not able to do, like go into the dressing rooms and kneel at ringside and take pictures. I've led a very blessed life, and I'm just very grateful and thankful to have the life that I've lived. And I thank you guys for inviting me to be on this show, even though I'm not worthy. You had George Napolitano on a few weeks ago, he's like my wrestling photographer idol. He spent his whole life and career taking pictures for professional wrestling. This guy was like my idol when I was a kid. So I just feel very blessed to be a part of the, the professional wrestling era. It, it's, it's a little more important to me now than it was when I was a kid. I think I didn't appreciate it as much. And I'm just very uh, blessed and led a very blessed life. Well, we... Definitely appreciate having you on the show today. It was a pleasure to have you, and I want to thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's actually the first show I've ever been on in my entire life, so I really appreciate you guys reaching out and asking me to be on the show even though I wasn't worthy, and I appreciate what you guys are doing, keeping uh, wrestling alive. It's very uh, commemorative of you. Thank you. Oh, well, Definitely glad to have you on here. Thank you so much again. So, fans, we will be back with you next week, next Friday afternoon. We have the unofficial historian of Idaho's Wrestling Club and CAC Award winner, Brian Westcott. Then one week from today, we will be joined by Dalton Davis out in the Midwest. So make sure you have plans to be with us. We'll talk to you soon. Get out there and support your local independence. Ah!